I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Inside Try Show with Helen Murray. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look at the sport. With in-depth interviews and special episodes to keep you entertained and inspired while you're training. Perfect. And over to you. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the Inside Try Show, sponsored by Resilient Nutrition, who make incredible long-range fuel nut butters. I'm Helen Murray and each week on the Inside Try Show, I bring you awesome interviews from triathlon and beyond. If you are a new listener, welcome along. It is great to have you here. Do head over to insidetryshow.com forward slash links and you will be able to find out all you need to know about the podcast you'll be able to find all of the different episodes you'll be able to sign up to the newsletter that I send out every fortnight there's plenty of stuff there and back in the autumn I actually asked those of you who follow me on social media at Inside Tri Show and who get the fortnightly newsletter for some feedback so I could improve the podcast. So thank you if you took the time to fill out the questionnaire. And the answers were really fascinating and proof to me that the mixture of interviews that I put out there and do is probably about right, as some of you wanted to hear more from the pros, others wanted less from the pros. Uh, Some said it was just about right and I know you can't please everyone and and that is something that I (laughs) I have in my head all the time because I know some weeks aren't great some weeks you probably love it other weeks you think yeah wasn't quite there this week so yeah you cannot please everyone but one thing that a few of you mentioned was that you would like a bit more advice about training and nutrition I, I always think that there are some nuggets in each episode whether it's about mental resilience whether it is about training advice or or nutrition or whatever but I completely get that it is useful to have some focused episodes as well so with that in mind we are going to be talking all about training in this week's episode and then in a couple of weeks time we'll be doing another episode all about nutrition 
Time for this week's interview. Laura Needham is co-head of physiology at the English Institute of Sport, and she's also senior physiologist at British Triathlon, which means that she is all about trying to help athletes and coaches get their training bang on, ultimately, so that they can perform to their very best when it matters. Now, I did languages at university, so I'm not too hot on my science, but the fantastic thing about this interview is that Laura speaks in plain English. Not only that, she has a really good sense of humour and she has so much wonderful knowledge to share. And she was up for answering your questions as well. Laura Needham, welcome to the Inside Try Show. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great, thank you. And I'm really excited to be here. I think it's a great time to be able to pick your brains I think especially like at the start or the in the early part of um, of the year so Laura what exactly is your job with British Triathlon? So my job is um, I'm the physiologist for the Olympic program um, so that means we've got um, 20 world-class program athletes um, so they're funded to be on our program and we're all about kind of supporting them as a kind of huge interdisciplinary team in, including the coaches to try and achieve medals on the world stage essentially and that ultimately at the end of every four years um, at the Olympics. So that, that's kind of our aspirational goal. And as a physiologist, what exactly then are you doing and, and how does that role maybe differ to the role of a coach, for example? Yeah, so um, I always like to think of a physiologist as um, the coach's kind of <laughs> best friend almost, um, and just kind of someone to talk to around training and um, kind of delving into the kind of the science, but also the kind of art of piecing it all together. Um, it's very much around, you know, if we, we've got a performance we want to get to working backwards, like if we break that down, how can we track and monitor our progress throughout kind of, you know, even the four year, eight year, maybe even 12 year career? How can you track and monitor, you know, can you can review the training? Is it having an impact? Is it doing what we want it to do? And it's essentially working alongside the coach and the athlete and then the other support team as well to, on that journey. So are you there like at training sessions or would you be more there afterwards, like in meetings and, and things like that or in labs? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both, really. So um, I, do, I do spend some time in the lab. Um, we've got um, a good setup in Loughborough. We'll do stuff on the road as well. So um, I've got a camper van so that often gets taken out and we um, <laughs> set up a lab in the back. So that's been quite helpful. Um, and then at training sessions as well at the pool, potentially. Um, and then we do do a lot of stuff remote and the pandemic's been really good in terms of us, you know, just even meeting. So it's more convenient for when we do talk to the athletes or the coaches, we can be a lot more flexible um which is great but the the best thing always um from my perspective is when you're on camp and you're fully immersed and you're all together and it's those kind of conversations over dinner where you know you, you just yeah they're just really geeky <laughs> but we love it <laughs> and they're really impactful and what so what kind of conversations might they like yeah what what might they be over dinner what would you sort of be perhaps saying to to an athlete yeah, so um, probably the, the the evening dinners are more with the coaches. If you've collected some data, so we might have done some bloods on the um, on you know if they were doing a bike session, we might take some lactates, and then we'll have the data and we'll have the heart rates and the power data, and we can look at kind of what the physiological response to that session was. Was that what we were aiming for? How do you progress it? How could we kind of monitor it over time? 
um, all those kind of things. And then sometimes we get into a really, really deep science that we all lose ourselves and have no idea what we're talking about. And we're like, uh, I don't know how we got here, but yeah. <laughs> so are you, are you like, are you crunching a lot of data? Yeah, bits and bobs. I wouldn't say it's, um, we're, we're actually recruiting at the moment for um, a, more of a data person. Um, that's definitely probably where things are going these days. Like we're, we're constantly getting data from all sources. Um, and th- we've got people now with specific expertise that can almost crunch that data for you. But yeah, I do I do work in the numbers and I, I do enjoy kind of bringing a level of uh, objectivity, I suppose, to what we're doing. Um, while that's not what we solely put all our decisions on it's definitely a combination of kind of the coaches are the athletes response how they're feeling and then you can bring a bit of data there to, to bring to the bigger picture as well the holistic plan so that's what i was going to ask actually because clearly as like triathletes and runners and things like that you know we quite like gadgets but sometimes when you talk to elite athletes they might often say i don't go out running you know i don't look at my watch when i'm doing it and would you say that's the case that a lot of them actually do work on feel and it's the team behind them, i.e. you, the coaches who are really looking closely at that data? Yeah, I'd absolutely say that. And I think starting in triathlon, um, I've probably been with the programme about four or five years now. And um, I was surprised how little data was used. I think with an endurance sport, you probably expect a lot more. But yeah, like we, we've probably only got to the point really now where the majority of our athletes have got power on their bike, but not necessarily all of them. Um, but yeah, so it's it's really kind of, it, there, there is a bit of a difference. And I'm always amazed um, how uh, um, RPE, I don't know if people are familiar that, um, that's basically a rating of perceived exertion. So if we use the Borg scale, that's between six and 20. Um, and the reason why they do that, if you add a zero, if people don't know this, then it should kind of correlate to heart rate. Not everybody knows that. Um, so you might say, oh, it's 18 out of 20 in terms of how hard it is. And if you add a zero, it's 180 heartbeat-ish. Not an exact science. But yeah, I'm always amazed how in tune and how much I re- like, how reliable RPE is, because that's the, that's the athlete's experience. They know themselves better than anybody. And actually what they're experiencing, you know, that they're, they're pretty consistent. Um, so it's always a really good tool. That being said, there are times when you obviously, you might want to push too hard or, and, and actually, you know, you, you kind of need to reel them back in a little bit. But yeah, definitely I'm surprised, I think. And people often are about how much technology is used. And a big challenge we have at the moment is how much technology is available and how much data we're getting. And actually, as a scientist my concern is always around is this valid is this actually measuring what we think and is it reliable so every time we go to measure it is it actually giving us data which is which is reliable and a lot of the tools out there aren't necessarily that um so yeah it's trying to work out what is reliable and valid and and how it might apply to our world as well that's really interesting so then would you would you say that actually yeah you know the data is really really important but if you can go on feel as well then that's always going to be a good kind of value to go on yeah for me and this is where i feel quite strongly i think there's um it's it's a puzzle and it's actually about bringing all the bits of information together and use them all together so you know 
I think if your data is available, you should use it, but not solely just use it because you should use your feel as well. So, and then also what somebody else might be seeing, your coach, for example, they, they've always got a different lens to, to what you have as well. It's, it's really interesting. Laura, I think we're going <laughs> to, we're going to learn loads over the next sort of half an hour or so. I, I have a feeling. So like, what was your role specifically in, with the triathletes in the run up to the Olympics? Yeah, so those of you that will have known, um, the Tokyo Olympics um, threw up a huge challenge for endurance sports, um, especially us in triathlon, um, was was the environmental conditions we were going to be exposed, well, we, the royal we, <laughs> I just had to stand there, but um, the athletes were going to be <laughs> exposed to. So you would have seen that the marathon got moved to um, Sapporo, which was um, thought to be cooler, um, and, and, you know, all the timings of the events as well, at the Olympics, the the triathlon started at half six in the morning which lent for a very early wake-up call for all of us um so yeah that that probably took up that was probably the biggest um project I had in terms of for the cycle and that started straight away when I started within triathlon um it was almost like how are we going to best prepare the athletes um to deal with the environmental conditions that we were going to face because um japan it's kind of subtropical so you you're looking at around you know on on the worst day 70 80 percent humidity and 32 degree heat um it is it was hot and it's that stuffy hot so um yeah it was something that we hadn't really you know athens was hot but it wasn't humid so it was definitely something new for us and we'd obviously had um and some of our athletes had experienced um you know heat heat illnesses in in previous races so it was high on the agenda so that was a lot of what my work went into over the cycle i know that heat is also your area of expertise so if someone like uh i mean when i say someone i mean perhaps someone listening to this or a, a keen age grouper if they have a race which is going to be in the heat do you have any suggestions as to how they should prepare for that heat yeah, I would say it is worth seeking some some advice. It potentially could be expensive, but I think given how important it is and how much of a risk to performance and health it is, it's worth the investment. And it's um, what we've seen and, and what we're starting to do is actually you, our athletes fly off it. So I, I think it's not it's not all work, it's not also about the heat. It's actually about the physiological adaptations you get because it's such an overload of kind of physiological stress. Um, so so yeah, my advice would be you know that there's universities have environmental chambers across the across the kind of UK UK and also you can um, you might be able to speak to an expert and then you might be able to you know if you, if you do it safely you could do it in your home environment as well. Um, but you just have to be really careful with that and that's why it's worth getting some expertise. What kind of stuff can you do at home then? Um, so one of my colleagues in um, hockey, um, they had a plastic pop-up um, greenhouse that you just buy from B&Q or off, off the website, which um, you can essentially um, put a person in um, on a turbo, um, put a load of heaters in there, and you can basically create your own heat chamber at home. You have to be really careful, so I just caveat all of this. You know, we it, we did that with our athletes, but we we monitored them. You know, we had we used core temperature pills, but um, and it's not as in controlled as we did within the laboratory environment because they're specialised kind of equipment. But there are ways of doing it. But again, like I've kind of talked about, the worst case scenario in all of this is pretty extreme. So you have to be really careful about that. So Laura, if an age group athlete, so someone listening to this maybe, has got a race in the heat, how far out should they actually start preparing and trying to acclimatise for that? 
Yeah, so um, you probably wouldn't want to do longer than like a 14 day heat block and that's a big one. You might, you probably might not even need to do that. Um, What you don't want to do is be finishing your heat block a couple of, like a day before you travel, for example, because you need a bit of time to kind of get over the the stress because you will come off the back of it fairly tired and fatigued. Um, But you don't want to do it too far out that you actually your body kind of loses all the adaptations because it hasn't had to use them. Um, so I'd recommend probably, um, you, you can almost finish your big block, maybe two, three weeks out, which is what we did before the Olympics. And then you can do a couple of like two or three sessions just to top up um, before you go. Or um, if you are going out in advance of your event, um, for example, for Tokyo, we had a 10-day holding camp in Miyazaki, which is South Japan. That will do the top-up for you. And essentially, that's great if you've got some time in-country. You can then basically use all your um, adaptations that you've got from doing your heat block at home. Um, Actually, you know, doing race-type efforts and experience it within the heat. So you don't arrive and then you actually have to build all your heat adaptations up when you get there. That's that's nice if you're in elite. (laughs) it's fine yeah if you've got the time not always the case (laughs) you always have to keep bringing me back to that because I forget (laughs) but you were going to say something else yeah I was going to say you can also do some um there's a bit of memory around heat adaptation so you can also do um like say for example a five-day block earlier on in the season so that when you come to do your big block before your before your race it's not a complete shock to the system that you kind of know how to kind of manage yourself through that and that's probably more linked to hydration fueling and just the feeling of fatigue as well amazing 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 so right Laura can we go back to basics what exactly is triathlon physiology so triathlon physiology that's the question (laughs) um I think um what's really interesting coming into triathlon having worked in other sports is it is very much an endurance even when we talk about kind of super sprint it is still very much an endurance event and people talk about anaerobic and and this that and the other and you're like no it's still fairly endurancey um so so what we know about um endurance sport you know and and obviously you've got such a huge wide range with um up to you know hours and hours and hours um you know what you know our olympic or sprint or maybe even super sprint. So what we do know about that um, the event is that it requires volume of training and, and that's almost how you build fitness is through you know long, slow, steady endurance training and that, and that should make up the majority of kind of your, your training program with some intensity in there because that helps move on um, fitness and stress the body as well to adapt. So yeah, that's I, it's quite a tough question to ask that one. What is <laughs> technically my job? I should do the answer a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did a good job. So, if that's the um, triathlon physiology, what is adaptation? People always talk about adaptation to training. What is it? So basically, and this is really interesting, and we must always remember this because the misconception is training is bad for you, in respect that when you train, you're basically damaging your body. so so when you go out for a run or ride you're essentially creating damage and what adaptation is it's the body going hang on a minute you've just damaged us we better be better prepared for that next time so we're gonna recover and and repair all the damage you've done 
and we might actually repair it a little bit better than it was to start with so that next time you do it we can cope with what you're going to do to us so so I like to think of it in in that respect and and that just really helps me because because people go you know I'm training really hard I'm I'm in my training sessions I'm getting fit well no you're not actually when you're getting better is when you're doing nothing after you're training your body's rebuilding and, and repairing all that damage that you've done so when we talk about adaptation it's the body kind of um going mm, we're going to do a better job and that's why you have to keep slowly kind of moving your training on and, and if you just keep doing the same thing your body's like oh we can do this all day like if you're just going to do a 5k park run every week which is what i do i don't get any better because that's all i do <laughs> so it's going well i can run a 5k in the time that you're doing every week because we we can do that whereas you know if I want to really move that on I need to start stressing the body in order for it to adapt that was a great explanation I really really like that and I think we will uh, we'll come on to recovery we'll do a bit more on that because clearly that is a massive massive part but as we now have this basics of the physiology the basics of the adaptation how might you put a a training plan together and if we need an example let's say that someone is doing a an olympic distance triathlon in june yeah so and i think that's a really really good place to start um and and people tend to start with what am i going to do next week or what am i going to do today or tomorrow and actually the really important thing is like what is your aspirational goal and you know you, you called me out earlier in terms of the elite end it might be that you know you're, you're chasing after olympic medals or it might be that you want to do your first ever triathlon and and that's the best place to start because you can look at your kind of aspirational goal and you okay, okay we've got that what do i actually need what are the performance requirements of that so first ever triathlon you need to swim bike run <laughs> and at some point you probably need to put those together as well and you know the distances so then you start to break down okay well what what does the swim look like what are the performance requirements of the swim it and you know for example I, I did a marathon back in 2015 and this so my aspirational goal was literally completing it I didn't care about the time because I had never run a marathon before and I will never run another one again <laughs> after that but it, but it's actually about you know it, you, we can talk about elite and we can talk about you know your first ever for example but essentially what it is is like my mind was just to be able to spend that amount of time on feet so then my whole training program working backwards became about right well how long realistically is it going to take me okay five hours so I need to be able to spend that amount of time or build towards that and then you can start kind of chunking up um, periods of times with progressions and working backwards and then start piecing it all together and then probably like the majority of these audience you go then you've got life <laughs> and you know yes. I, and we, we joke about elite athletes are full-time athletes they also have stuff that goes on and you know there'll be a wedding or there might be you know all sorts of things that you actually have to factor in because everything you do needs time and and that's and that's a stress you know even if it is just a late night because you've been to a wedding like you can't then expect to turn up for training the next day and deliver normally what you would be able to deliver so it's piecing everything together and it's not just the training it is the kind of life stress as well even if those things that we're doing aren't necessarily stressful they're still nice things to do and they take energy away from from everything once you've kind of got what your performance requirements might be it might be that you're looking for a specific time that you want to complete for your olympic triathlon in june for example if it's just complete it then that you know you can work from that if there's a time you'll then need to start to break down okay what time do I need to be getting out of the water in? What does that mean for my swim speed? You know, what can I currently do? And you do a bit of a gap analysis. So where am I currently and where do I want to be 
by June and you can do that for swim, bike, run and then you need to remember you put them all together so they all have a knock-on effect of each other and then all of a sudden you might go "Mm, maybe that time was a bit maybe it was a little bit ambitious or how you know you might do a race midway to check in where are you with with that kind of performance time you want to achieve and so all of a sudden you can start to kind of build you know well those are the times I need and 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 all of a sudden you're piecing all the puzzle together. And how would you divide the time Laura between swim bike and run? What I've learned um, as a scientist which is it's heartwarming it's also a little bit <laughs> annoying is there is no clear this is right and this is wrong and I am terrible for that because I'm a scientist so there should be but actually there is an art to it and you know no no athlete is the same N- none of you listening out there will have an identical unless you're an identical twin maybe but an identical physiology you'll all have your own kind of um you know whether whether swims your real strength and you might go do you know what my swim speed's there I can literally do what I need to do actually it's my bike that I really need to focus on because that is what is absolutely killing me and all of a sudden you're starting to go right if you really want to focus on your bike then the you know you you might just have a maintenance and this is where I look at it is what are you overloading and what are you just having a maintenance dose if I know I do three swims a week and I get this volume in I'm all right and actually, that's almost just your keep, keeping it afloat. <laughs> Terrible pun there, sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean that. Um, but actually, you go, all my time and energy is going to go into to my bike volume. So, um, you know, and, and I wanted to hit two quality sessions a week and then build in the volume. So I think for me, it's like, where's your focus and where's your priority? And then almost you kind of need to, to focus in on that. And then that almost goes in your training program first. So if you want to do it, you know, say you've got a four week block and you're right. I'm at, during this I just really want to focus on on my biking program that in first so make sure when you want to hit your two say you've got two quality sessions a week or you might have one do it on a day where you you're not rushing around um, as much as you might be on the other days or you know it's not being influenced by you know work so you might go you know a weekend day is a really good day to do it because you know after I've had a day off and blah 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 so yeah that that's how I think you should kind of program it and then the extras that are you know you just need to tick off you, you can start to piece them on days which are a bit more busier as well. This is great by the way it's really good simple advice that normal people who aren't necessarily elite can follow so yeah awesome stuff so what about then we can't just go like you said with your um park run every week same kind of pace that's maybe (laughs) not the best for triathlon training so then how do you know when should you be doing easy stuff when should you be bringing in harder stuff like do you need to be doing sprint stuff and again we might get a bit sciencey with this but go for it laura yeah, I think for me, our head coach um, at Trathon calls it rainbow approach. So you should kind of touch on everything. You know, every everything's important, but it's almost like what you're focusing on. And I think you, you have to start with your event demands. So um, we know within Olympic, for example, within Olympic um, triathlon, because um, it's bunch racing, um, it's it's drafting, you do have a lot of repeated sprints in there out of corners. Whereas, you know, in, a, in another um, a different event, you know maybe more your Ironman ends you literally maybe do one tiny sprint to get out of transition and then you're up to speed and there's no corners so do you see what I mean so it's really looking at the event demands and actually then how much of that should be in your program but essentially 
it, like we went back to what the physiological demands are it's an endurance sport so we do need to do volume <laughs> which means that um and and that's something that i i don't think we you you know for a certain extent if you're going for your first triathlon you need to kind of be able to do a regular amount of consistent training in order to go and deliver that performance but as we start getting more specific with times and and kind of aiming for certain um speeds we do need to start looking at increasing that volume at that kind of large end and then we've got our intensity sessions where you do need to be hitting kind of um thresholds and above in order to kind of stress the system and move that physiology on laura can you explain the perhaps some of those different training zones a little bit as well so like the aerobic and then you mentioned their threshold so yeah go for it yeah so and this gets really complicated and a quick google search will show you that there is no consistency around how many training zones there are (laughs) you can go from like 10 to 3 um so if we talk purely physiology um there is kind of three um deflection points for example that we would look for um if we did a traditional lab test for example so the three kind of points we look for are first threshold also known as many other names aerobic threshold maybe um lactate threshold or there's there's a million different ones but your your first threshold is essentially um where you have it's it's really easy and it's where you kind of just disturb the physiology it's aerobic in nature in terms of you're you're using um oxygen to fuel this kind of energy that you're outputting for the speed and then when we talk about second threshold that's when the body kind of changes from being able to keep up the demands of the speed that you're asking the body to do where it's going I can't actually do this solely with all the oxygen I'm gonna have to rely a little bit on my anaerobic stores and that's a deflection point that we look for so those are your two thresholds so second threshold is might be known as FTP critical power um, lactate term point there's, there's again there's lots of different terminology so it's really worth knowing what it means and it doesn't matter that there's lots of different terminologies but what you need to be able to know is when you're talking about your terminology for example with a coach or, or with a friend over a coffee you're actually talking about the same things and then the last um, deflection point is your vo2 max so that's the amount of oxygen that you can kind of take up and utilize and um, that's just what your system's capable of um, so those are your kind of three points and then what basically the scientific and coaching community have done is basically just chop them up and that's in order to help with training prescriptions so for example if we did all of our endurance training at first threshold we would probably get really really tired and exhausted and probably overtrained. so they basically chop that into one and two to try and manage the intensity and and likewise with above second threshold they've done the same thing so that you know sessions might uh, that need to be pitched high you can be a bit more specific too what's the difference between sometimes you might see tempo sessions and sometimes you might see threshold sessions are they the same are they different but again is it like that different terminology oh absolutely because for some people that might be like I've had a conversation with someone where they're talking about tempo I'm talking about threshold but we're talking about exactly the same thing um so I think but then other times you might talk to someone else and it's completely different or in running it means one thing but in swimming it means another um and I think that's like it's cool whatever you call it but again if you're having that conversation just just be really clear about when I talk about tempo this is what I mean is that what you mean and you know you just get a common language then so you don't completely go oh my god how are they even doing that session that sounds completely unrealistic and then you try and do it and then put yourself in a hole so um yeah it's complicated and it's um 
but you know it's it's just one of those where you just have to have a conversation about it hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And the nuts and bolts of it, right? Why is it important to train at those different levels? So I think if we talk about triathlon um, and we talk about an endurance sport, the probably biggest risk we have is um, energy availability and the um, overuse injuries and kind of overtraining, which is essentially where you've just pushed the body beyond what it is able to tolerate and deal with and it has a response whether that be injury or illness. Um, so the importance of kind of the the thresholds is 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 you can still, and and this is where it's really difficult, and I think especially with an endurance sport, is that the easier you go, people feel like they're not training. So you go, oh, that feels so easy. And you're like, no, 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 it should, because you have to do a load of it. And actually where the beauty and the magic and the adaptation comes from is almost that overload over time and that consistency of stressing the physiology, but not too much, that it responds and adapts. But then also every now and again, putting in your high intensity sessions that you do kind of stress the body and ask it to do high intensity stuff. But essentially the two complement each other. So you kind of, you would have heard a lot, a lot of people talk about the 80-20 and what that model is talking about is um, it's all about intensity management. So it's when you're going easy, go easy and don't think that it's not doing anything because if you do enough of it, it absolutely is. If you've only got two hours of training a week, then yeah, might not actually be doing what you need it to and you might need to have a rethink. But when we're talking about kind of really high volume programs, that's generally what we see. That's from observational studies where they've looked at elite athletes, what type of training have they done and then what are the performances we've seen off the back of it. And so if someone does have, let's say, eight to ten hours a week, so not your kind of 30, but a few more than two, yeah. that easy is still, that's still really important in those eight to ten hours, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, eight to 10 hours is really impressive still. That's still a huge amount of volume. And, you know, don't forget as well, it's about the accumulative effect as well. So if you can keep that going and that be that consistent for three, four, five, a year, two years, that's all building on one another. Whereas if you try and, you know, smash out three weeks of amazing kind of training, really top end, doing everything really hard, and then you are you are absolutely knackered and can't actually do that for another two or three weeks, then you, you better off going the other way. So yeah, that, that intensity management is still really important, I believe. And and this is where the difficulty comes, and, and I absolutely hear you, is that the way that you almost overload the low intensity stuff is that you have to do it via volume, not through just going a bit harder. 
in all those low intensity sessions and I know that's really hard when you've got a full-time job you might have kids dog needs walking all the rest of it but essentially you might be better off going do you know what I've got for example you might have two two-hour rides within your week you might actually be better off trying to build that two-hour ride up to three hours do you see what I mean so, but at a low intensity so that you, you again you're kind of you're creeping and pushing the system constantly to try and adapt because that that's where you're going to get your gains in terms of your endurance fitness. Laura, I'm hearing loads of coaches going, oh my God, she's just saying so much good stuff. <laughs> you're hammering, you're hammering the message of easy, go easy. <laughs> yeah, and it's so hard. And I, I think we've all been there, right? Haven't we? Where you just go, I just want to, sometimes you just want to go out and smash a session, don't you? You might have had a bad day where you go, do you know what? I'm just going to go and run it off or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, you can get away with that to a certain point. But essentially, if we, if we are talking about endurance performance, I think the biggest challenge we, we the royal we, again, as, as endurance athletes have is intensity management. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to the elites and the athletes that you work with, when you say to them, I want you to go easy, do they struggle as well, Laura? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, athletes, whether you're elite or not, you're all programmed a certain way. And that's, you know, you want to, you know, we, we enjoy that kind of weird feeling of hurting ourselves when we train, don't we? So, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's part of um, a career of an athlete is learning about what their body can cope with. And, and that's where we use data to help with that. For example, um, you know, we might take some bloods um, out on a ride and combine that with heart rate data, power data, and actually show you, no, actually, you're not sitting below first threshold here. On that ride, you're sitting up at second threshold. And you might have got through that session, but then when you turn up for swim the next day, you are absolutely knackered. Or you go to do, you know, your run session and you can't hit the the kind of speeds and the quality that you want. So you just have to remember everything has a cost and a knock-on effect. Um, but yeah, like it's it's unique across the board. It, it's just the way you programmed as athletes. <laughs> right. Let's do some um, listener questions. So we talked about heat earlier. So if we kick off with the opposite of heat, Joanna said, how about adapting to the cold? I find it really tricky racing in the cold. It's not necessarily breathing wise, but my legs seem to really struggle with being cold when I'm trying to race. Any any thoughts on that, Laura? Yeah, we've we've actually got a live case at the moment within the programme with that, um, with cold water swimming. Um, so I spent a bit of time um, with um, Professor Mike Tipton, who is just a legend in the whole environmental physiology um, <laughs> department. Um, and it was really interesting, actually. I learned a lot. Um, in terms of the cold, um, we can actually adapt to it and it's much easier than you think. So he talked around six exposures to cold water, just three or four minutes, and your body would actually adapt to the cold to a certain extent. I don't think it's ever probably going to feel really comfortable. But we, we also talked around, because when we talk around cold and hot it's all about heat balance so you know when we exercise and we create energy 75 percent of that is heat um and it's actually not very useful but in a cold water sense it could be useful so um we talked around heat storage before you might start an event um now this is a bit of a double-edged sword and you'd need to practice it but essentially it's talking about you know if you did a warm-up you actually 
are storing heat, which um, something like Tokyo Olympics, you don't want heat, you want to get rid of it, you don't want to store it. But actually for, for cold water, it, it, could, um, it could be beneficial. Caveat that with then when you immerse yourself in the water, do you then get not cold shock, but you, you know, your body then goes, oh, so it's more of a shock. So it's one of those that you probably need to practice a little bit. And then of course, um, layers as well. You know, when we talk about wetsuits, there's equipment we can use as well. And we even had a conversation around wolf, fat or some lamb's fat something gross like that um because it's basically an insulation <laughs> i was like oh that's gonna go down well with the athletes isn't it <laughs> just smear you <laughs> but yeah it's thinking around around those kind of lines what about laura for something like a giraffe one which doesn't involve the cold swimming but actually it's just like cold air temperature and it's well in the uk you're going to be doing it at a cold time of year basically and so that can be quite horrible yeah, um, we also had a conversation about that as well, hands on, hands on bike or uh, things like that. Um, I think that's where we're probably looking at, um, it depends on the regulations of the race as well in terms of what you're able to wear. But I think a, th- a thorough warm up and, and, you know, how can you go into that race as best as possible and... But yeah, the, the environmental conditions are a real challenge and um, sometimes you just got to get creative if the rules allow Right, back onto the swimming. So Jennifer said, I get cramp while swimming. So even if I'm fully topped up with precision hydration and I've done a full mobility routine, I always feel like my legs are going to cramp. I might just be paranoid about it after I had a DNF last year, but I would love to know any other causes that might cause that, perhaps other than hydration. Yeah, so um, this question actually made me dive into the literature a little bit around cramp. And it's not going to be very helpful, unfortunately. Um, they don't know is, is the answer. Um, they um, they surveyed, um, oh, I don't know, maybe up three, four hundred athletes. Um, I think this was in America to basically see if um, sweat rate and concentration was was basically correlated to those that would cramp and those that didn't. They're quite hard um, lab studies to do because you can't always predict that someone's going to cramp or not. But yeah, they just kind of surveyed. Um, those athletes and essentially there was there wasn't really anything there um so it wasn't necessary the hydration the only correlation they had with was american football players where there did seem to be um, a link there but that that again leads on to my next point which is sometimes cramps to do with um, extreme environments so whether that be really cold or really hot um environments but essentially it's it's all to do with a fatigue mechanism that we don't really understand so i think it is worth maybe when you do get it happening what were the kind of conditions um that that might that may have contributed to it um but essentially then then it might be that you know how fatigued are you going into that you know the tissues and fibers and and the neuromuscular side of it have they been pre-fatigued so actually it's it's a consequence of that but sorry jennifer that's not overly helpful lowry asks what is the benefit of a double run day and is there a minimum amount that you should aim to do in both runs and i did actually go back and i checked and i said is this for like 70.3 ironman kind of distance and she said well yeah yeah so i think it probably ties in with what we were talking about earlier in terms of um the kind of overall plan and and double run days you know is is there a reason why you're chopping that up what's you know what's the purpose is it around fueling is it around fitting it in timing I don't like to think about one session or two sessions in isolation you know if we we take a step back and look at the physiological stress that that session is doing where does that fit 
so for example um are you doing it because you can't fit your you can't actually do that as a one-off long run you know are you just doing 30 minutes and you could do 30 minutes and it's really easy is that really stressing your body or is it that you're you want to do those 30 minutes to pre-fatigue to then go into your next run that you've kind of got some running in you because essentially that's what your event's going to be so I think it's just kind of looking at the bigger picture there in terms of what's the purpose of them and over time it might be that you might go do you know I just want to do one long run that, that might be more specific training for your event and are there are there benefits to doing to breaking up a a long run so maybe if you're down for i don't know two and a half hour you want to get that in at some point in that day yeah are there benefits to maybe doing an hour and a half in the morning and then an hour later on in the evening or would it be better if you can to get it all done in in one go yeah, so that probably comes back a little bit to my marathon example earlier. So if it's that you literally at the moment can't do two and a half hours and you're trying to build time on feet, then absolutely that's a great way to do it. Um, something I used to do was walk the dog and then go for my run. So yes, I think when we link back to um, what how we how we kind of overload the system at the low end, at the endurance end, is that we build in volume. I think over time you would want to do that as one long run and that should be your aim and then you can practice kind of nutrition strategies as well. So, yeah, probably um, a bit of both. And I'm going to pick one more question on this. Are there benefits to the body for splitting it up in terms of like injury and kind of like that overuse? So are there benefits to, to not doing those two and a half hours all in one go? yeah absolutely you know injury you think about overuse um you know if you do a run go and like you know loll on the sofa for however long watching netflix and then go back out then then those tissues and and they would have started to recover especially as when we talk about low intense and low intensity training it's much quicker to recover off that than it is those high intensity sessions so yeah absolutely fine so double runs are okay basically <laughs> yeah it, it obviously can get quite difficult at times to to fuel sessions so you know if you if you can you know you just need to get the training done you can you can eat properly and then and then go again as well without having to have loads of kind of gels and things like that because over time they can get a bit a bit dull and a bit boring <laughs> moving on to strength and conditioning um so two questions i think related to this so laura on instagram said is there an optimum time to place strength and conditioning in your schedule? Should it be after your big session of the day or does it not matter? Yeah, and again, um, strength and conditioning is probably a term that's used um, for a lot of different things. Um, so it might be that it's just a core circuit or it might be that it's actually, you know, you, you would look into actually gain um, some strength. So it comes back to the purpose of that session and if you've done a hard session and then you go to do your S&C session, are you, the purpose of that session, are you able to deliver that? And over time, are you achieving what you want to from that? So, for example, if you're trying to get stronger, do you feel stronger? Are you able to turn up to sessions and not feel like absolutely exhausted and that you're kind of just getting through it rather than actually getting the most of it? And, and again, that comes back to what's the priority? Where are we putting it in the programme to protect it? And, and that would be my kind of key point with that one is, is ensuring that, you know, it's doing what you need it to do and you're able to, to, to perform it as you want to. Perfect. And then so Stephen says, I train or exercise seven days a week. And I guess this is a bit of a question about recovery as well. So 
on a rest day, is yoga or a bodyweight core strength session okay to do? Or should I replace a training session? So I guess he's saying, actually, should I just take that one day as recovery and maybe during the week ditch, say, a run or a bike and do the bodyweight or S&C at that point instead? Yeah, and, and again, there's not a right or wrong here. Um, it's probably looking at your life and how it all fits together. And essentially, like some people need a complete day off and other people feel awful if they have a day off. Um, so it's kind of individual preference. I think, again, it comes back to that bigger question of are your sessions progressing over time in order for you to try and improve so it might be that you need to make one of your sessions longer for example and then you go if I do that then actually like I might need a recovery day off the back of it or or or, you know it's again it's kind of that not looking at it is I do this on that day and that on that day but it's actually a bigger picture of how does the whole thing go together and and in some cases it's absolutely fine if you if you don't have a complete day off like I'm not going to you know in other cases it might be that some people need that you know so again it's kind of what works for you how you fit your training in with your life and and that's the decision probably only you can make but again ensuring that you're getting what you want from those training sessions god sorry I feel like a broken record with that (laughs) (laughs) um Laura what like yeah how important is recovery Well, it goes back to our earlier conversation, I think, about adaptation. So recovery is when you're actually getting better, (laughs) when your body's rebuilding and and repairing. And and we probably, we are all guilty of, all our focus goes on training sessions and content and doing those sessions rather than all the other bits that go around it. So, And the biggest one, I think, for the listeners is um, your sleep and your nutrition. Like those, if if you get those right, then you are like 90% of the way there. Those are the most important things. So focus on those and don't forget about them because those are the things that will help you rebuild um, and, and get better. You're trading, like I said, we need to do it, but it's it, that's the damaging bit. We're going to have a, an episode all about nutrition um, another time. So this is uh, good information. So another question, do you have any tips, this one's from John, to run a fast two and a half K off the bike? Maybe like, are there one or two weekly go-to sessions that that John should be looking at doing? I think one, I would just an, a kind of um, reflection I had when I came into triathlon, which I was surprised about, is probably how little everything is pieced together. Um, so, you know, stuff is generally done quite isolated. So you do a run session, you do a bike session and, and then you, you know some people might do swim to bike and they might do a, a bike to run as they lead into competition but yeah that that always sticks with me and I, I keep reminding my coach of that I'm like I'm still really surprised and I absolutely get it right with the injury risk and the kind of there's a lot of faff as well with it with those types of sessions but I think for me like pr- practice like run sessions you can probably hit your target times when you're fresh but when you've got a bike in your legs, it is a completely different ball game. Um, so I think the ability to practice run off um, the bike is really important. And I think breaking it down is a, is a really good start. So, you know, do, uh, you know, don't, don't, well, I said, I'm surprised they don't put it all together. Don't start putting in like five sessions a week of triathlons. Um, but for example, breaking down, you know, it, whatever your time might be for that two and a half K, 
can you um, do, do a bike session, for example, um, even if it's one of your kind of slower endurance rides, you're still putting a level of fatigue within the legs. Can you get off and then deliver that pace that you want, that run speed with that kind of pre-fatigue um, and start? To, and you could maybe do three or four weeks progression of that that you might do two, three, five hundred metres off the bike at race pace. You might um, progress that to 750 or, uh, you know, a K. Um, you can kind of chop it you, you see where I'm going with it but essentially try and practice what you want to achieve that I mean that's relatively close to competition because we're getting quite specific there um, that's off the back of obviously doing your huge kind of volume and, and all your prep work in order to deliver that amazing and then we have one other question from Mark and Mark's question is I'm going to give you the long version of it. So I've been a long-standing triathlete, but mostly specialising in short distance races. However, on a whim, I entered and completed Ironman Wales in 2019 and I finished in a respectable position, which gave me a Kona slot. Here lies my question. I managed to finish that race on eight hours training a week and I only tried my nutrition the week before. So basically pretty much blagged it. It's a great blag. (laughs) It's a really good black, isn't it? It's amazing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And getting a Kona slot. Well done, Mark. Um, So basically, he's got a really good friend, Nathan, and a lot of people in the triathlon community would be aware of Nathan Ford. He had a serious accident last year. And because of this, Mark has foolishly entered Ironman Wales again, for Nathan and he wants to do him proud basically and he knows that he didn't take it too seriously back in 2019. So what advice would you give Laura with work life and the fact I am 48 Mark says I can manage about 10 hours a week so what should I work on for those small gains should I drop the sprints and some of the swim runs and the run races and just focus on Ironman Wales or should I just keep racing and doing some of those shorter distance races and the swim runs and those run races? Long question. Wow. <laughs> Amazing story. Um, firstly, well done. Like, that is incredible to blag that. But but in all seriousness, like it, sh- it probably shows um, a level of conditioning through just training. Do you know what I mean? And we, we think about the kind of event demands of, of that race. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty impressive that he's gone and delivered that. The first question is, do what you enjoy. You know, if you like doing your your run races and your swim to bikes, like they they clearly work. And don't forget, as much as we need to prepare the body to deliver, you know, whatever kind of what the event demands are, if you're in a pool more than you're running, you're still doing endurance training and the body doesn't go, oh, no, no, these, these mitochondria, we only use these for swimming. We don't use these for bike, which is basically where we break down and use oxygen. So don't forget, training is training. Um, I think that, you know... It might be that you might want to tweak a few things, but it sounds like it's working. And I think if you fancy a new challenge and you want to mix up your training, then absolutely. Um, I would be um, I would probably be on the side of caution in terms of don't make drastic changes overnight to your to your program because you found a level of being able to get through and tolerate that level of training so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. and clearly it's working for you because you've delivered that performance but if you fancy a change then yeah mix it up and but progressively um or if you know if you're just happy doing what you're doing then crack on with it <laughs> and enjoy and that is a key part of it all isn't it the enjoyment whatever the science says 
Yeah, and that's a huge thing. You know, when we're, when we're talking to like the world-class program athletes, it's like, how can we make this enjoyable for you? Like, sometimes it's really miserable having to go and do a five-hour ride in the winter in the UK. And it's like, oh, I mean, I'm not sure how much we can do to make it more fun. But, you know, that is a huge part of it. And that's, you know, that's that's our community, isn't it? It's we, We're all a bit weird and mad because we do it, but we do it because we enjoy it. And I think that's a really important thing to remember then I reckon we end on that point, Laura. Uh, you've been a superstar. It's been really good fun and uh, you've made it totally understandable. So thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Inside Try Show. If you want to get in touch or get a little bit more information on anything, then reach out to Helen on Instagram or Twitter at Inside Try Show. Oh, quite right. It is all about having fun, isn't it? And we made it back into the hills to continue trying to get some time in our feet for the Highland Ultra at the end of April. We were in the Berwyn Mountains, which not many people have heard of. And to be honest, I'm quite happy to keep it that way. And to continue with some more useful training advice, Dr. Greg Potter is back on the podcast. He talked about the importance of nutrition last week. And this week, it is all about hydration you're also going to try and tune your hydration strategy at this time in the case of the noida event i think drinking to thirst is almost certainly a good way to go for everybody the reason being in part that it's not an event that takes place at extremes of temperature if you are trying to do the mds then it might be a slightly different story but in the case of a multi-day ultra in which none of the stages run at a really fast pace and the climatic conditions are relatively moderate, I think drinking to thirst is a good way to go. And then if possible, you want to monitor your body weight during the event itself. And regarding your hydration strategy, what you should be looking for is drinking to thirst, but also attending to your body weight and your goal should probably be to lose no more than one kilogram per day over the course of the event. What you'll realize is that from when you start running on a given day to when you end, you'll probably lose a bit of weight and that's fine. Hoffman has done some nice work showing that if you look at ultra marathon runners, they might lose two kilos or more of, of body weight, but some of them maintain hydration and a lot of that lost body weight is actually because they've, they've lost a lot of glycogen from their muscles because the carbohydrates that we store in our muscles associate with water. For each gram of carbohydrate in your muscles, you might have three grams of water. So if you've, if you've just lost several hundred grams of carbohydrates from your muscles, you're bound to lose a substantial amount of weight, if that makes sense. Mm. So looking at those things and then also just looking at the color of your urine at the start of each day, and I specify the start of each day for a reason. It's because during the sleep period, the different fluid compartments in your body have time to equilibrate. And so that first, first morning urine pass tends to be quite representative of your hydration status in general. And your goal should be to keep the color of your urine apple juice or lighter. I think that's generally a good way to go. Remember, you can get 10% off Resilient Nutrition's long-range fuel pouches and jars of nut butter. They are seriously good. You cannot but (laughs) go in with a spoon. So use the code INSIDETRY10 
over at resilientnutrition.com. You can also get a discount at 33fuel.com. They do really good, big, chunky energy bars and protein bars. They are fantastic if you have a big day out in the hills like we've had and you're not going quite as fast or things like that. So you can have them in your bag and make sure you get the calories in. They also do shakes. They do chia seed gels as well. Just use the code insidetry 33 and then confuel.co.uk. They will also give you some money off with the code insidetry. That is it for this week. Happy racing, happy training, and we will catch up again next week. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.